Um, and I also especially want to thank um, Rachel for her talk this morning, uh, which is very hard to follow because she dealt with such profound issues and issues that really touch the heart and that I think are um, touch a central nerve also in all of our work with young people. I guess that what I'll try to add this afternoon is some aspects of today's young person, which Waldorf education in particular tries to meet, though obviously not exclusively so. And perhaps one could say that a good deal of what Rachel presented this morning is already built in to the Waldorf method the way students feel safe with each other, being able to talk to each other, being able to work through symbols as a means of expressing themselves, and so on and so forth. It's there. It's not that we always use it, or it's not that we're always ready to adapt it to the needs of today's child, because after all, we're a method that's getting on 90 years, and it's important to keep reviewing it and keep understanding it in a fresh way. And it's wonderful to hear that Shining Mountain, which is always a bit at the cutting edge of Waldorf education in North America, has asked Rachel to come and do an in-service with them so that they can fine-tune the work that they're probably already engaged in. She spoke of educating with soul. I think today I would like to speak about educating with spirit as well, uh, working with the soul and perhaps dealing with that vital spark which is so strongly living in the young person. And the term millennial child, which I've used to talk about children born in the seven or ten years before the turning of the year 2000, and those who will increasingly be coming our way over the next decades throughout this new century, it's a term that is similar perhaps to indigo children, the name of a very, very popular bestseller that came out around the turn of the century, and Georg Kulevin's remarkable book about star children. Think, however much we might disagree about specifics, it's very clear that a new kind of child is coming into the world. And today I want to speak a little bit first about the genesis of, of this new child. Where are they coming from, and why are they coming now? And secondly, to look at ways in which parents and educators can meet the child. Of course, the time is short. I'm only going to be able to give you a, a very um, sort of uh, skeletal picture. But I hope that it will stimulate questions and um, bring ideas to you, which in turn will continue to be reflected and resonate throughout the rest of the weekend. How different are these children? Well... I've been around the block as a parent. In the 20th century, I had two sons. So I saw adolescence at the um, twilight of the last millennium. And in this millennium, I have two daughters, right now 9 and 16. So I'm going to experience adolescence in two different millennia. I also have four grandchildren. And I'm seeing, even with this generational change, how new, how fresh the life forces that these children bring into the world are. To give you an example, I always have to find little gifts and, or go clothes shopping for my grandchildren. And just recently, I went to buy some onesies for a very newborn one and for one a little bit older. And just to show you how advanced these children are, here on the onesie is written... Are these people really my relatives? <laughs> so there, there's already this remarkable sensibility that they have. For the older child, um, the one with the slightly bigger onesie, um, this, uh, I found this, of course, um, in, the, you know, in the mall in Boulder, this one. Um, so you see these children are very, very developed already. They're asking profound existential questions and questioning pretty much everything when they come. Now, I'm going to share some things with you, uh, which you could say are, of, um, depending on your point of view, a somewhat esoteric nature or just completely far out. 
You can see which one it is. But I, I hope that by sharing some of this, it will help um, answer some of the questions that today's children raise for us. Now, as a Waldorf educator, I ascribe to the idea that the children that I meet in my class have been here before, that I'm probably with them because I and they lived at a time before in another lifetime and have some very, very profound karma to work out with each other. And this is really an important basis of my work as a teacher, that what I do really matters. It's not just a matter of educating them, it's also a matter really of helping them meet their own destiny. And in a sense that I meet my destiny as I work with them as well. And Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf Education, spoke about reincarnation in ways that uh, in many respects are unique, uh, very different from other teachings of reincarnation in the past and even in our time. The rhythm that he gave for reappearances of souls was much, much slower, much longer time in the spiritual world than virtually any teacher before or since has spoken. He said it's about a thousand years between the time we die and the time we return. Hence the importance of the millennium. This is why thousand-year periods strike us so strongly, why there's always a sense of panic or doom. In the year 1000, it was the feeling that the world was going to come to an end. In the year 2000, much worse, the feeling that computers were going to crash. <laughs> Remember? It was very, very, a, a tremendous panic, and billions of dollars were spent on making sure that that wouldn't happen. So the computers didn't crash, but the world is coming to an end. So one way or another, the prophecies work out. But if we imagine this to be the case, if I just ask you, you know, to just um, accept this as a hypothesis, then the children who are being born right now the last time they were on the earth in physical bodies was around the year 1000, that apocalyptic time when suddenly um, the number 10 appeared in the course of time and when the Middle Ages started to open up the path that two, three, four hundred years later would flourish as the Renaissance. So it was a time when old forces of a rigid, dogmatic faith, of widespread ignorance, of tremendous savagery and barbarism throughout Europe, for example, they were still very strong. But the light was shining through. Something new was coming. And if you examine the biographies of individuals living between the year 970 and about 1050, you see some exceptional individuals who almost seem of our time. They were so ahead of their time, they usually suffered for it. But they were bringing something new which could only flourish half a millennium later at the height of the Renaissance. We go back a thousand years before that, and we are at the time of the beginning of the Christian era. Individuals who may have been present in Jerusalem at the time of Christ who may have been in Rome at that time, who may have been anywhere in the world sensing once again something of light is trying to shine through the darkness. Something's trying to break through the increasing rigidity, the physicality of the Roman Empire. Wasn't ready yet. It was too soon. And tragedy and martyrdom ensued. But again, 500, 600 years later, one sees Christianity as the official religion of Rome and a world-changing force. We think back a thousand years before that, we're in the time of the great epics, the time that uh, just preceding Homer's composition of the Iliad and the Odyssey, a time when Steiner says the old clairvoyance in which people could see the gods and goddesses walking on the earth, that was fading. And a few individuals were trying to understand the world in a new way. Prematurely, the time wasn't ready. It wasn't until the golden age of Athens 500 years later that these ideals, this new striving 
this new clear-sightedness in the physical world could really happen. And Steiner actually described that in addition to the physical umbilical cord, which is severed at birth, there's an etheric umbilical cord. The child remains connected with the biological mother for seven years. And only with the change of teeth in the year that the child goes and starts to work with the class teacher in the Waldorf school, only at that time is the etheric umbilical cord severed. Seven years later, an astral umbilical cord is severed, and seven years after that, when we're already in or out of college, our final umbilical cord, our ego umbilical cord is severed, and we are only then truly separated from our biological mother. Human beings are very, very slow. Really takes us a long time to work through our childhood. What about an adopted child? The adopted child born in China at age two, taken from China and brought to the United States. What about the biological mother? Is there a connection? Yes. What if the biological mother has died? Is there a connection? Yes. The connection for 21 years with the biological mother transcends space and time. It transcends life and death. It is simply a fact. Whether that mother is on the earth or in the spiritual world, the connection is there. And this is very important to recognize. It's, of course, there on a very unconscious level, but sometimes the behavior of a child who's been adopted is inexplicable. It's an enigma to the parents who've done all the right things in raising that child. Something happens, and one might have to say it can only be explained because there's a connection to the biological mother, and she is going through something which is directly affecting the child, as though she were right there next to the child. Now, I don't want to make those of you who have adopted children feel, but what about us? Do we have any role in the spiritual life and growth of the child? This is where the most important aspect of modern adoption comes in. Parents who adopt a child have the possibility of creating a whole new set of umbilical cords, depending, of course, on the child's age. But assuming you've adopted a child before age four or five or so, the mother has the possibility of expanding her etheric forces. She has to do it with a degree of consciousness. That's the difference. It doesn't come naturally. It's not imprinted in the human being to do this. But it is a gift, we might say, given to us in our time from the spiritual world that a child can actually be given two etheric bodies, which then, of course, might be at loggerheads with each other, might have to accommodate each other. The same with the astral, the same with the ego. The only thing you can't give the child is your physical body. That remains at one with the physical body of the biological mother. So it is really going to be possible that in the next 20, 30 years, as adoption becomes so much more widespread, that we are going to have children who actually have a surplus of soul and spirit forces because they've had, two bio, they've had a biological mother and they've had a soul mother, we might say. Fathers, I'm not trying to discount your importance either, because in a way the father is the bearer of the spirit of the child. And it will be the adopted father who will play a much, much greater role in that child's life than the biological father. The biological father's connection here is not that strong in this. It's really the two mothers and the one father who work in this. These will be forces that can be given to the world. And I imagine that there are going to be forces of cosmopolitanism, forces which will really help to bring unification. And it's interesting, the one shockwave that Waldorf schools often experience with the influx of adopted children is that suddenly, for the first time, the teacher has to learn much more about China than he usually would, or much more about Chile or Colombia. 
suddenly the Waldorf curriculum, which parents for years have begged, can't you make it more international? Does it have to be Eurocentric? It's not easy changing that curriculum. It's so perfect in so many ways. But now the children's very presence, their appearance in the class, starts to affect a change in the Waldorf curriculum, which makes it more truly international. And here again, this is going to vary school by school, but it's a very remarkable phenomenon. And every time I go back, every year I go back to Waldorf schools, there they are, four new adopted children, six new adopted children, eight new adopted children. It's remarkable how their numbers are growing. So I think this is a very, um, it's going to be a complex matter. It's going to challenge us on many levels. They'll probably be the time in the lives of many of these adopted children when they then will have to find something of their past. They're going to have to do it consciously. But so did Moses. So did Krishna. So did Romulus and Remus. They too had to learn who they were and what their mission was. And I would predict that this is often going to start bubbling up in the life of the adopted child round about age 12 and a half. Now, let me speak about 12 and a half in relationship not only to the adopted child, but also to the millennial child, and where parents and teachers now um, are faced with a very great challenge. For the first 12 years or so of its life, a child is not, of course, carried anymore in the physical womb of the mother, but it's carried in what I would call the destiny womb or the karmic womb of both parents. Just as it's a parent who carries a little one around, it's the parent who pushes the child in the stroller, it's the parent who drives the car that delivers the child on that very wonderful first day in the kindergarten and so on. It's the parent's destiny, the parent's karma, which carries the child for the first 12, 12 and a half years of its life. That is to say that it's very, very important for a teacher not only to have a good connection with his or her class, not only to feel that they know the children through and through and love them and hopefully are loved by them, but increasingly it asks of us as teachers that we take a greater role in working with parents. And I think that this is going to be another great change in education over the next decades, the next century, that parents are going to have an ever more intimate role in the educational process in the school. They're going to be students in the Waldorf School themselves, and they're also going to be working more as teachers and assistants in the Waldorf School. This is, I think, one of the reasons that homeschooling and Waldorf-inspired homeschooling is getting so strong as well. Because parents are trying to transform their relationship with their child, not just to be the parent, but also to be co-learners and co-teachers with those children as well. And it's remarkable. All of this stuff has just really been coming to consciousness in the last few years. Ten years ago, if I went to a school and said, do you have any homeschoolers here? The teachers would think for a while, oh yes, there was, there's one family, they, they left the school and they're homeschooling. Now the average school, small as it might be, might say there are 10, 15 families, we work with them. They come to our festivals, they come to our assemblies. 20, 25, 30 families are around the school and we're working with them. We're trying to see what kind of arrangement we can make out. This is also growing rapidly. Barbara Dewey and I were speaking before. How many Waldorf homeschoolers are there? 10,000? 100,000? A million? Who knows? All that we know is it's the fastest growing segment of Waldorf education right now. But let's go back again to this age, 12 and a half. The child is carried by the parent's destiny.
Um, and I also especially want to thank um, Rachel for her talk this morning, uh, which is very hard to follow because she dealt with such profound issues and issues that really touch the heart and that I think are um, touch a central nerve also in all of our work with young people. I guess that what I'll try to add this afternoon is some aspects of today's young person, which Waldorf education in particular tries to meet, though obviously not exclusively so. And perhaps one could say that a good deal of what Rachel presented this morning is already built in to the Waldorf method, the way students feel safe with each other, being able to talk to each other, being able to work through symbols as a means of expressing themselves and so on and so forth. It's there. It's not that we always use it or it's not that we're always ready to adapt it to the needs of today's child because after all we're a method that's getting on 90 years and it's important to keep reviewing it and keep understanding it in a fresh way. And it's wonderful to hear that Shining Mountain, which is always a bit at the cutting edge of Waldorf education in North America, has asked Rachel to come and do an in-service with them so that they can fine-tune the work that they're probably already engaged in. She spoke of educating with soul. I think today I would like to speak about educating with spirit as well. Uh, working with the soul and perhaps dealing with that vital spark which is so strongly living in the young person. And the term millennial child, which I've used to talk about children born in the seven or ten years before the turning of the year 2000 and those who will increasingly be coming our way over the next decades throughout this new century, it's a term that is similar perhaps to indigo children, the name of a very, very popular bestseller that came out around the turn of the century, and Georg Kulevin's remarkable book about star children. I think however much we might disagree about specifics, it's very clear that a new kind of child is coming into the world. And today I want to speak a little bit first about the genesis of, of this new child, where are they coming from and why are they coming now? And secondly, to look at ways in which parents and educators can meet the child. Of course, the time is short. I'm only going to be able to give you a, a very um, sort of uh, skeletal picture. But I hope that it will stimulate questions and um, bring ideas to you, which in turn will continue to be reflected and resonate throughout the rest of the weekend. How different are these children? Well, I've been around the block as a parent. In the 20th century, I had two sons. So I saw adolescence at the um, twilight of the last millennium. And in this millennium, I have two daughters, right now nine and 16. So I'm going to experience adolescence in two different millennia. I also have four grandchildren. And I'm seeing, even with this generational change, how new, how fresh the life forces that these children bring into the world are. To give you an example, I always have to find little gifts and, or go clothes shopping for my grandchildren. And just recently, I went to buy some onesies for a very newborn one and for one a little bit older. And just to show you how advanced these children are. Here on the onesie is written, are these people really my relatives? <laughs> so there, there's already this remarkable sensibility that they have. For the older child, um, the one with the slightly bigger onesie, um, this, uh, I found this, of course, um, in, the, you know, in the mall in Boulder, this one. Um, <laughs> So you see these children are very, very developed already. They're asking profound existential questions and questioning pretty much everything when they come. Now I'm going to share some things with you uh, which you could say are of, um, depending on your point of view, 
a somewhat esoteric nature or just completely far out. You can see which one it is. But I, I hope that by sharing some of this, it will help um, answer some of the questions that today's children raise for us. Now, as a Waldorf educator, I ascribe to the idea that the children that I meet in my class have been here before, that I'm probably with them because I and they lived at a time before in another lifetime and have some very, very profound karma to work out with each other. And this is really an important basis of my work as a teacher, that what I do really matters. It's not just a matter of educating them. It's also a matter, really, of helping them meet their own destiny and, in a sense, that I meet my destiny as I work with them as well. And Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf Education, spoke about reincarnation in ways that, uh, in many respects, are unique, uh, very different from other teachings of reincarnation in the past and even in our time. The rhythm that he gave for reappearances of souls was much, much slower, much longer time in the spiritual world than virtually any teacher before or since has spoken. He said it's about a thousand years between the time we die and the time we return. Hence the importance of the millennium. This is why thousand-year periods strike us so strongly, why there's always a sense of panic or doom. In the year 1000, it was the feeling that the world was going to come to an end. In the year 2000, much worse, the feeling that computers were going to crash. <laughs> Remember? It was very, very, a, a tremendous panic, and billions of dollars were spent on making sure that that wouldn't happen. So the computers didn't crash, but the world is coming to an end. So one way or another, the prophecies work out. But if we imagine this to be the case, if I just ask you, you know, to just um, accept this as a hypothesis, then the children who are being born right now the last time they were on the earth in physical bodies was around the year 1000, that apocalyptic time when suddenly um, the number 10 appeared in the course of time and when the Middle Ages started to open up the path that two, three, four hundred years later would flourish as the Renaissance. So it was a time when old forces of a rigid, dogmatic faith, of widespread ignorance, of tremendous savagery and barbarism throughout Europe, for example, they were still very strong. But the light was shining through. Something new was coming. And if you examine the biographies of individuals living between the year 970 and about 1050, you see some exceptional individuals who almost seem of our time. They were so ahead of their time, they usually suffered for it. But they were bringing something new which could only flourish half a millennium later at the height of the Renaissance. We go back a thousand years before that, and we are at the time of the beginning of the Christian era. Individuals who may have been present in Jerusalem at the time of Christ who may have been in Rome at that time, who may have been anywhere in the world sensing once again something of light is trying to shine through the darkness. Something's trying to break through the increasing rigidity, the physicality of the Roman Empire. Wasn't ready yet. It was too soon. And tragedy and martyrdom ensued. But again, 500, 600 years later, one sees Christianity as the official religion of Rome and a world-changing force. We think back a thousand years before that, we're in the time of the great epics, the time that uh, just preceding Homer's composition of the Iliad and the Odyssey, a time when Steiner says the old clairvoyance in which people could see the gods and goddesses walking on the earth, that was fading and a few individuals were trying to understand the world in a new way, prematurely, 
the time wasn't ready. It wasn't until the golden age of Athens 500 years later that these ideals, this new striving, this new clear-sightedness in the physical world could really happen. It's not as important if the child loves the teacher for those first 12 years. What's most important is that the parents love the teacher, that the parents respect the teacher, and that the parents can work with the teacher. If they can do that, no matter how difficult the child is, it's very likely it's going to work. But if it's just a connection between the teacher and the student, a difficult child may not be able to stay in that class. So it's very important, and schools have to redouble, triple, quadruple the amount of parent work they're doing. Because parents, really, their, their destiny with the teachers is crucial in an educational system that is as dependent on goodwill as is Waldorf education. Then something changes and something happens. For a few years after that etheric umbilical cord is, cord is cut, for about five, six, perhaps even seven years, the etheric forces are freed up and the child is using them to develop memory. And that's a lot about what the class teacher years are about. But about age 12 and a half, the child's astral body, which has been present, but not very, very strongly present within the child, has been hovering around the child for years, ready for its glorious moment of incarnation, twelve and a half the astral body begins to rush in and begins its work then in developing the first forces of puberty and then adolescence. As soon as the astral body appears a new relationship to destiny opens up for the child and the child from one day to the next becomes the bearer of his or her own karma, his or her own destiny. At that moment, the role of the parents in determining the child's next steps becomes a smaller and smaller role until by the high school years, high school teachers generally prefer if the parents stay outside the door and they work directly with the student. But here you've got the poor class teacher who for all these years has been doing perhaps a wonderful job working with the child, but it's all really based on the connection with the parents or to a great degree. Certainly, most class teachers do have their own karma with most of the children in their class, but not all. In fact, sometimes it may be a minority in the class that has karma with that teacher. They want a new teacher or they want a new school. And this shocks everybody. And one often sees in Waldorf schools how a class shrinks um, in sixth grade or at least at the beginning of seventh grade. The great change that occurs as children wake up, look at that person talking to them and say basically, who are you and why am I in this room? Now, something else happens at the same time, which is quite wonderful and connected to this as well. Just in, as the child wakes up and looks around and starts asking what this Waldorf education is all about, what am I ever going to do with this stuff? Um, somebody else in the child's life wakes up to Waldorf education, and that's the father. Because very often, it's mother's who, as I said, in the womb of their karma, with that umbilical connection to the child, they walk into the Waldorf nursery, they walk into the Waldorf kindergarten, or they meet the class teacher in first grade, and they know. They don't have to read anything about it. They know in the depths of their being that this is the place for their child. The father will go along because the child's clearly happy, is flourishing, and because the mother is definitely happy and gets very, very involved. And I think any class teacher can speak about how uninvolved fathers can be year after year after year. Or they'll come to meetings, but they'll sort of be silent partners to the mothers. It's definitely the women in the meetings who make a lot of the weather. Until one day in sixth grade... There's a parent evening, and suddenly everybody hears an unusual sound, and 
they look out and there a helicopter is landing in the basketball court and out of it comes a father who has never been seen in this school before. He's been trading bonds in Shanghai, you know, multi-millionaire now. And he appears, sits down in the room, and good sixth grade father that he is says, how do these kids do on the SATs anyway? What's, what have you been teaching my kid all these years? What, what the hell is going on here? You know? This should be regarded as a, a song of joy because now he's going to be involved. Um, and so he does get involved. He shows up at class plays. He even comes to the rehearsals. He works on the sets. He comes on class trips. He drives everybody everywhere. And he's involved and engaged. And by the end of eighth grade, in a certain way, he is carrying the strong impulse. Many years ago, when this school was, well, the entire school could probably fit on this stage. It was so long ago. I had a father in Shining Mountain Waldorf School come up to me and say, um, I just want to ask you this in a very personal way. Don't get offended, but is this like a girl's school that admits boys? <laughs> and I really had to think about that. And I thought, yes, up until grade six, from nursery kindergarten to grade six, Waldorf schools are girls' schools that admit boys. But after grade six, when physics comes, when algebra comes, when a whole host of subjects and different approaches, a more intellectual, cognition-first, analytical side of Waldorf opens up, especially in the high school years, they are boys' schools that admit girls. So you see, you have to be there for the whole thing in order to really see it all. There's never a moment when Waldorf education has it all. Just as is there ever a moment when your child is all that he or she can be. It's a process. It's an ongoing movement. It's a dynamic so the Waldorf School reflects that. It's always imbalanced in one way or the other. But in the sixth grade year, this is where you see this beautiful cusp as the feminine matriarchal meets the masculine patriarchal. And this is the moment that's ripe for the awakening to destiny. This is indeed when every young person feels, I am adopted. Where like that onesie said... Are these people really my relatives? Can't be. Because they're feeling their own individuality so strongly that they're realizing, I am my own mother and father. I keep really sending myself down to get a taste of earthly life, but really I belong on high, where relationships are very different, where we're not parenting and ch childing and so on. So this is what the child senses at that time. And I would say the hallmark of the millennial child is that this is going to be experienced with ever greater clarity, with an ever greater sense that I am someone who is an individual first and part of my family, part of my school, part of my community second. How to deal with these strong forces of individuality. Like a bright light, which doesn't only shine in one direction, but sheds light 360 degrees, this 12-year experience is already going to be foreshadowed in third grade when the nine-year change comes, in first grade with the change of teeth, even probably at age three, we are going to see children being more awake, more aware than was definitely the case when we were younger or certainly the case when our parents themselves were younger. And I would say that Waldorf education in the 20th century was basically holding a dress rehearsal. All of Waldorf in the 20th century was getting ready for this new breed, this new race almost, we might say, of children who are going to require an education far more holistic and comprehensive than that which came before. When Rudolf Steiner was working with the um, 
state and city authorities in Stuttgart in 1919, trying to quickly get the first Waldorf school underway, he wanted to work out the grades and the years differently than they finally got worked out because the state told him, you are educating factory children. These factory children go to school for eight years and then they apprentice. This is the only education they're going to receive. So it has to be eight years, not seven, as Steiner apparently had originally intended for the class teacher years. Um, So Steiner recognized this is the only education these factory worker children will have. In eight years, I have to give them everything that they would get if they were upper-middle-class Germans who then went on to the gymnasium secondary school and the excellent German university. I have to squeeze 16 years of education in eight years. That's what Waldorf is all about. It starts out slowly, and I've put examples of student work from grades one through eight here. So in a couple of minutes, you can just quickly see the speed, the acceleration that occurs especially after grade three, how the children are leaping, leaping, leaping forward. Now, Waldorf does not hold children back. All that it does is to coil that spring in the early grades, let them step way back for a pause so that they can leap far forward in the upper grades. So we have to realize this. Waldorf education often sells itself short and talks about all the things it doesn't do. But as you can see from just a cursory look at this work or the wonderful display that the Shining Mountain Waldorf School has set up in the front of the building, a lot happens in those years. This is what the millennial child wants and needs. They want an education that is rigorous, that's demanding, that is filling them to the brim, but with real content, with meaningful content, but that's doing it in a way that meets their development, that doesn't rush them too soon nor hold them back too late, but really speaks to the rhythms of growth that underlie the child and that are especially to be found in that etheric body of which I've spoken. Now let me shift gears a little bit and speak about two of those other A's. I've spoken about adoption, and now I want to speak about ADHD and Asperger's syndrome. And I apologize, it's going to be a very, very cursory look at these two very deep and profound problems. But once again, I want to look at them through the lens of the millennial child. Are they all bad? Are these bad things happening to children that we have to really alleviate and do away with? Or again, are they the sign that something new is coming towards us which we are not yet equipped to understand? because we as adults are still in that rigor mortis of the age that's dying and we're not yet opened and permeable to impulses coming towards us. And I would say that both ADHD and Asperger's syndrome, if you're not familiar with the second term, it's part of the spectrum of autism-like syndromes. Um, Nonverbal learning disorder is another term that's sometimes used interchangeably with Asperger's. Um, ADHD has been in the news for years. Since it was named in 1982, it's growing and growing and growing and growing, and the amounts of Ritalin and other pharmaceutical remedies used um, to alleviate it are industrial in nature. I mean, we're speaking about 1,000 tons a year being used in the United States. You know, it's, it's incomprehensible that that much medicine could be used for anything. Asperger's is newer. Although it, too, was named in the 80s, it was not until the late 1990s that um, one read anything about it outside of very clinical studies. Now it's appearing here and there. I'd say once or twice a month, the front page of the New York Times will have something about Asperger's syndrome. ADHD is probably plateauing. Uh, not least because the patents on Ritalin are expiring and there'll be no reason for the drug companies to tell everybody their children have ADHD. 
Asperger's is going to go up. And right now, there's no Asperger-specific remedy or medicine. It's something new. It's still under study. They're very important, so I want to say at least something about them. In ADHD, we can say we're seeing a child, a millennial child or a proto-millennial child, who is so deeply enamored of earthly life, who is so eager to come on the earth where the most important spiritual battles are fought. Steiner said the spiritual world is at peace. But if you want to fight a spiritual battle, either join the Marines or be incarnated on the earth. This is where the fights go on between good and evil, not in heaven anymore. So these are guys, mostly guys, some girls too, eager to join into that battle. There's a quality of prematurity about them. And it would be very interesting to study the relationship between preemies and ADHD. But I'd say it's of a soul and spiritual prematurity. They're rushing into their body. They're taking hold of it before it is really physically ready for them to do so. So you have a body that's overly ensouled. There's not enough room for the life forces. Instead, these astral forces that are meant to come between 12 and 14 appear in the child in a fairly incarnated way at age 4, 5, 6, 7. And what we see then is what happens any teacher can tell you in 7th grade. All right, now every quiet down, please. I have something very important to share with you. And everybody gets quiet except... Please stop that. Then. Please stop that. Please stop... Nervous. Everybody's nervous. This is the sign of the astral bodies coming in. Everybody gets a little bit antsy. The ADHD child doesn't even have a 12, 13-year-old body to hold that powerful astral body and its forces. Tiny little body trying to take in a very powerful soul force. It's a very beautiful thing that the child is carrying. It's almost like the whole cosmos is there, but they can't handle it. So it sort of drags them, it pulls them, it impels them all over the place. They are in a way, they're showing us what the astral body looks like if it weren't invisible. It's spinning around in spirals. It's lovingly imitating everything around it, mimicking it, and then getting completely bored with it. There's a wonderful figure in um, Goethe's Faust uh, called um, Homunculus, a sort of created being who has this sense too. You see, in a way, somebody who's heading towards a lifetime of about 35 years or so. Everything they're doing is just too fast. Their metabolic system is functioning too quickly. Anything they eat is fairly toxic to them. They, everything's very, very catabolic, breaking down falling apart all the time, and everything around them, everything they touch, breaks, gets dirty, doesn't work, and so on. So this is one aspect. The child in whom the astral forces are too strong, too young. Now, before I go on to what we can do about this, let me speak of the opposite pole. The Asperger child, in its most extreme state, this is autism, but an autistic child won't come to a Waldorf school. An Asperger child will, and already does. Almost all of you who are class teachers have a child like this in the spectrum in your class. Here is a child who doesn't want to incarnate, who doesn't want to face these earthly battles, is so spiritual that they can't imagine getting caught up in that mess of physicality, in that mess of good and evil and all those gray areas in between. They would like to hold back. And in a certain way, the angels have to push them into incarnation. But that's like getting pushed fully clothed into a swimming pool. It's much nicer if you dive gracefully. Much nicer current appears in the water. When you're pushed in, it's a mess. And you come out wet and you feel awful and just want to get away from everybody. That's the Asperger child. They want to get away from everybody. And in moments of great distress, they will actually assume the fetal position. 
And it's like lifting up a thousand pound weight when you have to lift up a little Asperger child who's assumed that position. They are dying into birth, just as the ADHD child is dying into life. They're both imbalanced. The ADHD child is always letting you know what's on their mind and what's happening. They can't stop talking. The Asperger child can't start talking. Very, very quiet, very inexpressive. And just as the ADHD child is caught up in everybody else's emotions and, you know, just completely filled with feelings all the time, the Asperger child cannot understand human feeling. Doesn't know when somebody smiles at you, that means good, nice, hi. When somebody frowns at you and tells you to stop, it means stop. The Asperger child can't understand any of that. They are very, very distant from all of the emotions that human beings carry. So we have this one pole of the child contracting completely, withdrawing, wanting to go back to the womb and staying there, and we have the other pole of the child expanding uncontrollably, wanting really, in a way, to go back to the spiritual world via the portal of death. And this, I would say, every child bears both of these. Some of you, I can tell by the way you're looking at me, you're thinking, which am I? My God, I'm both. I hope you're both, because then you're probably pretty normal. You probably fit in the normal spectrum. We all have our Asperger moments and our ADHD moments, and we hopefully find some way of, of keeping them a tight rein on both of them. But it's where the imbalance is strong. And I would say that as ADHD is going down in numbers, Asperger is going to be going up. That this is the next, the next wave of incarnations are those who are going to be resisting incarnation. Now, what does a Waldorf method, and I'm not even speaking here necessarily of a Waldorf classroom, what can Waldorf methods do? In fact, I would say ADHD is a very big challenge for the Waldorf classroom because ADHD children are very distracted by other children. Put them with three children, it's not so easy. Put them with 10, 20, 30, as in many a Waldorf classroom, it's very, very hard for them ever to come to peace because as soon as one child has stopped distracting them, there are 29 others from whom to choose. So it's tricky. The Asperger child flourishes in the Waldorf classroom. So it's a good thing for Waldorf schools that this is the problem that's going to be on the rise because I think it's going to really, it's going to show Waldorf at its very best in a way because Asperger children need other children. So homeschooling may be the better path for the ADHD child or at least more time at home, more time in the womb, more time where the etheric forces of the mother are strongly there. And certainly a Waldorf classroom also builds on those etheric forces with its rhythms, with its repetitions, its predictability, its security, the festivals of the year. All of these things help the ADHD child come into himself. But relatively speaking, they need more than that as well. And the home setting is very, very important. And it may be that ADHD is one of the factors that's even contributed to the rise of homeschooling. But the Asperger child, even if he or she, and again, it's more boys than girls, boys have a harder time incarnating altogether. As Goethe once said, we honor the girl for what she is and the boy for what he will become. And Asperger and ADH are both pictures, especially of boys becoming, boys in progress in a way, and all the obstacles that stand before that. But for the Asperger child, even if he's being homeschooled, it's important to get him in a social group. If it's a church group, if it's a community group, or if you can get other homeschooling children together so that he has to, he's compelled to talk to other children. Otherwise, he always wants to go back to the adult so that he's compelled to deal with children who fight, children who are unfair, 
children who don't accept him in their games because he's strange. He's got to meet all of that in order to make the breakthrough and be able to meet other human beings. And the Waldorf School, it's really like Humanity 101. Being human, a user's manual. There's a big part of that in the Waldorf curriculum. And the Asperger child does not feel human. The ADHD child does. They are very, very human. And they love everything about being human all the time and can't stop talking about it. But the Asperger child is not sure that this is really what they want to be, a human being of flesh and blood. And by the stories alone, the fairy tales and the myths and the biographies, the Waldorf curriculum keeps saying yes, yes, yes to that child. Keep showing them the reason that human beings are so needed in the world and how hard it would be for the world to go forward without them. And with this little by little, the Asperger child is able to make their own rapprochement to being a human being and find their way. So this is an area where Waldorf schools and or Waldorf-inspired schools and or Waldorf methods at home or anywhere should have a fairly high success rate and maybe in fact one of the few places um, in the educational domain in which Asperger's children can really be helped and really work well. An ADHD child, to use another polarity, as I said, is very sensitive to everything they take in. Um, you know, it was discovered in the 60s and 70s already how allergic they are to so many preservatives and foods. Then it was discovered they're allergic to substances in paints and floor coverings. Then that they're allergic to substances in the air. Finally, that they're allergic to almost everything. That everything in a certain way is a toxin for the ADHD child. The Asperger child can eat all kinds of things. Their appetites are often pretty normal or, you know, even um, above average, but it's sounds and sights. Their sensitivity is here. They're the ones who, when the children around them are speaking at a normal rate, scream out, Stop talking, everybody! Or if the light is turned on in the classroom, or even the, a match is struck to light the candle, they go like that. Everything is too much for them. So a Waldorf Method school also brings out that relationship to the senses. Nowhere outside of Waldorf are the senses, sensory experiences, celebrated and honored in such a full way as one finds in the Waldorf setting. So these are some aspects of the millennial child. These are sort of the, the double shadow that the millennial child casts with the very bright light that he or she is bringing into the world. There's no question that education is going to have to reach uh, a crisis point far beyond the crisis point that's really reached right now so that the spectrum of what's normal is going to be narrower and narrower so that testing becomes ever more high stakes and more and more determinative and so that efforts will be made um, in the womb to assure us that the children who come into birth are all going to be genetically as perfect as they can be. And it may be that the Waldorf School is going to be the last place, the last resort for children who are not genetically perfect, for children who bear all of the imperfections and the, um, the incompleteness that constitutes a human being in the making, a human being who is really becoming. And I think that this is where education today can play a role to realize that the children who are the outsiders in our time are going to be the insiders in time to come. That the children who often are suffering now are making a sacrifice so that new ways are seen to bring children into the world. Now I want to finish in my last couple of minutes by reading a composition written by a girl in a Waldorf classroom in the eighth grade. 
And this is sort of a, also a tribute to what Rachel brought this morning. And the, this wonderful, when a young person feels safe to express themselves, what they'll bring forth. And this is in a way an Asperger issue above all, because the Asperger child has to be led to feel safe about themselves. So this was written early in eighth grade in response to an assignment that I gave. We Waldorf teachers worked very, very hard to do creative assignments, you know, not just to give the same old stuff that you all got when you were in school. So this assignment, which I, I worked out um, after working with Steiner's ideas about eighth grade for quite a while, the assignment was what I did on my summer vacation. Um, <laughs> I thought you'd be impressed with that. <laughs> but they had to write it from two points of view. And here again, this is a bit what Rachel was showing us this morning. On the one hand, they had to write it in the first person. I did this, I did that. Everybody in the class wrote basically, I was bored. None of my friends were around. Morocco really wasn't that interesting. <laughs> you know, the Great Wall of China isn't such a big deal afterwards. After all and so on and so forth. I really felt in my heart for these children <laughs> suffering like this. But then the second one was to be written as though it happened to somebody else. So here was a girl who had to suffer because her parents had rented Jane Fonda's house in Martha's Vineyard and it rained a lot and she really had a horrible summer. In the first person, writing about somebody else, slightly different story. She heard rain gushing from the clouds beat upon her windows. Her teeth chattered, but it wasn't from the cold for the rest of her body shook too. A cold cloth dampened with water had been wrapped about her head. She was lying on her bed, staring up, praying to the water that was running in rivulets down the glass pane, to the water that dripped across her face to the water that soaked through the floral spattered paper cup clenched in her right hand. She trembled again. In her left hand, her palm swallowed up a spherical purple crystal. She prayed to that as well. Please let me be okay. Let me get better. Water, you are the element that has proven to be faithful to me. So help me now, please. O oh God, O oh Spirit of water, please let me stop feeling this way. She shook. The crystal in the cup of water surged vibrations into her hands and up her arms, adding to the shaking that she already experienced. The evening dimmed and the sky was a slate of gray. The winds howled. It was a dirge. She hoped it belonged to someone else. The trees were black figures, silhouettes, swaying a dangerous distance from the earth. The soil was a traitor, for it had not yet offered its support to the terrified girl trembling on her bed. The power went out. It was dark in the messy room, the floor strewn with clothes once tried on and then discarded. Candles were brought in, dripping wax cascades, making a pretty waterfall, frozen in a moment of time. Fire was her friend. Her sign was a flame-bitten one, so she felt at home. Comforted, now loved by the moon, the water, the fire, she was like the night anyway, working at the shadowed hours, tiring with the day. It had always been so. She began to relax. The sickening convulsion ceased. Gazing at the candle's flame, her features ringed with sweat, she felt the night was over her, flooding her eyelids and her soul. She fell asleep. Now this young girl stood up and read this to her eighth grade classmates. And then she told me what she was writing about. And anybody have an idea what she's writing about symbolically? And that was so wonderful when Rachel was talking about that. The need to give them symbols through stories, myths, and so on, so that they have a symbolic language they can work with. She stands up before her class and reads about her first period to her class. And she knows some will know and some won't. They'll just get the symbols and that's good enough. 
And she has no problem doing this because she feels comforted, she feels loved, she feels safe in that setting. And because she's able, like any great writer, to speak on many, many, many levels. And it is this multi-leveled aspect of the millennial child that I think we as parents, as educators, must reach and must touch. So I hope that this has been helpful. Please do come up and just take a quick survey of these books to see for yourself where a Waldorf school or a Waldorf education can take a child. Thank you all so much.